0: You are listening to episode number 16 of the Ranching Brunette podcast. I'm incredibly honored to have Brandy Buzzard joining us today. Brandy is a first-generation Kansas rancher and has made great waves in advocating for the industry with her open letter on the Green New Deal. You've probably heard or seen her numerous interviews and TV appearances on this, but for those of you who don't know Brandy yet, we're going to hear her ranching journey and insights today. Brandy, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, excellent. And I'm really excited to hear about you and your husband's journey as first-generation ranchers. How did you discover your passion for the beef industry and ultimately become ranchers?
1: Well, my husband actually grew up, he's from Ohio and he is actually, his family is like a fourth or fifth, maybe sixth generation farm in Ohio. So he's from a farming background with crops and and cattle and such. And I grew up here in Kansas on kind of what you would maybe call a hobby ranch. Like we had rope and cattle and 4-H animals, but we didn't actually like produce beef actively. Like that wasn't something that was the goal So we both have been very involved in production agriculture or agriculture of some kind our whole lives. But I'm the first generation, I guess, to have a cattle operation in our family. So we just decided this is something we want to do. I've always wanted to have cows. And he, like I said, came from a farming background where they had cattle and he wanted to continue that. So it was just kind of like, you know, when we got together and we're dating and got married, it was just kind of a given. We knew we were going to do that. So we didn't have some big realization wash over us or anything like that. It's just been something that we've always known we wanted to do. And it's fine. It's coming to fruition. Oh,
0: that's so exciting. And it's just so neat when you can grow up in an agricultural type lifestyle and then continue to pursue that on through adulthood and keep building upon that, you know, step after step. I love hearing stories that start out like that, because I think it's just a really unique way of being brought up and then continuing it on throughout your life and knowing that that passion has stuck with you on your journey.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely, I mean, we consider ourselves very privileged. Not everybody gets to do what we do. And we're very fortunate to have had opportunities and the ability to just to do this, because like you said, not everybody gets to do it. We're thankful that we were brought up in a lifestyle like this and that we get to raise our daughter in this lifestyle. We're very, you know, we're just very fortunate and thankful for that.
0: What better way to bring up a child than in this kind of lifestyle and get to have her experience some of the things that you experienced growing up and getting to watch that from a different viewpoint. I just think that's such a blessing.
1: Yes, it is. And, you know, in many ways, she's getting to do a lot of things that I guess I didn't get to do when I was growing up. Um, I don't know what my husband got to do when he was three. But, you know, she's experiencing the very wet, a miserable winter that we've had, you know, she's in the feed truck with me. She's there watching us roll hay out and feed, you know, feed cows in the winter. And she's there watching us when we're calving and things like that. And I didn't get to do that. And, and that's nothing. I'm not, I have not been slighted because I didn't get to do that. Sure. But I just, I didn't get to grow up specifically in that beef production lifestyle. And so, I mean, she's getting to do that. I think that's awesome. She's learning about, baby calves. I mean, last year, she was about a year and a half when we were or a little over a year and a half when we calved. And she saw us putting tags in ears at birth. And we got like really attached to ear tags. And she called them taggers. And she was like, adamant that she wanted to tag a baby calf, but you couldn't take the tag that she had in her hand. Like you had to tag a calf using a different (laughs) tag, but she wanted to be there to do it. I mean, she was so oh, cute. so entranced and almost like obsessed with it that we had a litter of puppies in like August or September. And I came in, she'd been in the garage and I had been like maybe in the garden or something like that. And I came in to make sure she was okay. And she, she was in the kind of the kiddie pool where we had the puppies. So they kind of were contained and she had a little puppy on her lap and was trying to put a tag in its ear. She didn't. Oh yeah. She just had a tag and was kind of pushing, pushing it on the puppy's ear. She didn't have like a tagging gun or anything like that. Right. You know, she she saw us doing that and they really, little kids really do learn and they imitate. And there's been so many moments like that where she has seen what we've done and mimicked it. And it's just, every time that there's a moment like that, I just, I get so excited because that's just a learning experience that cannot be replicated.
0: Absolutely. And I can just, you painted that picture beautifully because I can just picture her wanting to do that with the calves and then with the puppies. I just think that's adorable. I love watching little kids experience ranch life. And like you said, the things they pick up on is just incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, they just, their minds really are like little sponges and it was just really cool to to see that kind of stuff happen. So we, we enjoy getting to watch her do those kind of things. We actually just this morning, right before this interview, we just got back from picking blueberries and Aww. I didn't get to, I didn't go blueberry picking when I was little. Cause I don't know how big of a deal you pick was 30 years ago, yeah. but you know, she gets to see that and do those things. And you know, I don't know what kind of experience she would have. Like if we lived in the middle of New York city, I feel like it'd be pretty hard to go to a, you pick blueberry patch and that kind of thing. Yeah. So we just, We do not take this lifestyle for granted. We know that we're really fortunate and we're really just thrilled that we can raise our daughter in the same lifestyle.
0: Like you said, such a blessing. I think that's incredible. What part of Kansas are you guys in?
1: We live in Southeast Kansas. So we live about an hour ish south of Kansas, of the Kansas city metro area. So oh, okay. I live, we live almost on the, on pretty much the Eastern border of Kansas. If you were able to drive straight in Eastern Kansas, you could be in Missouri in 30 minutes, but because the roads are like wow. super curvy and hilly and stuff like that, it's kind of hard to drive straight.
0: Now I'm not familiar with Kansas, but I'm curious to know, what are the winters like?
1: So we have the worst of both seasons in Kansas. Oh no. <laughs> We have the really hot summers that are like over a hundred degrees. And we also have the 80% humidity or 90% humidity that goes along with that. But then in the winter, it's not uncommon for it to be below zero. We do not have two or three foot of snow the way that Montana and the Northern Plains like Nebraska and the Dakotas get. We do not get that much snow, but we generally have oh, very wet, cold winters. So um, we just live in a very humid I guess, moisture rich play, you know, part of Kansas. So very rarely do yeah. we get like a blizzard that'll dump two or three foot of snow on us, um, oh, okay. but we will get sleet and rain and snow and a freeze and then a thaw and then sleet and rain and snow pretty consistently throughout winter. So
0: oh, I don't know what would be worse, mud or ice in the winter. I mean, probably mud, but I don't know.
1: Honestly, I hate, I, you will never catch me complaining about rain I ever I like rainy gloomy weather and I we live and breathe obviously like farmers and rangers do At the hands of you know we're at the mercy of the weather and we need that rain to grow grass raise cattle so you'll never catch me complaining about rain but we live in a floodplain, so we flood pretty easily Uh, and it's been muddy at my house pretty consistently since September so I'm opposed to a little ice at the moment (laughs) but in February when we're driving and trying to feed cows and stuff like that. I don't necessarily enjoy the ice, but at least it's frozen and it's not muddy. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. So I don't know.
1: <laughs> it's, it's it's very subjective.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. I don't I don't know if I could handle all, as much mud. I mean, we get a little bit of mud here, but usually our springs and summers are so short. Like today, well, yesterday was the first day of summer and we had snow in mm-hmm. the mountains. And today it is gloomy and cold and we're not going to get above 55 degrees. And that's just kind of a Montana summer. And then we'll get a few weeks there I would get, you know, in the 90s and whatnot. And then it seems like in the blink of an eye, it's back to winter and below zero temps and tons of snow. So yeah, it just depends on the season. And you just got to roll with it. You need a visitor? Yeah, right. Come on over.
1: (laughs) It's like, it's supposed to be like 92 today. And I have... Oh, gosh. Yeah, I don't have any heat tolerance. And I I have zero Brahmin influence is the joke I'd like to tell. Yeah. And... (laughs) So we actually have had a really mild spring in terms of heat, like we maybe had two days that I would say were hot between, you know, in this recent spring. And we just really got hot kind of yesterday on the first day of summer, which seems appropriate. Yeah. But I do. I'm not really big fan of summer. The only good thing about summer is that there's a lot of rodeos.
0: Yes, absolutely. It is definitely rodeo season, and that is always enjoyable. Yes. Uh, So you've had some amazing results from your open letter to Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I hope I'm saying that right. I am terrible about about pronouncing names. Regarding the Green New Deal with appearances on national television, and you've had numerous interviews. So I'm curious, how would you encourage others to stand up for our industry and properly address some of these misconceptions that we seem to be facing?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that when you write something and you're angry, don't publish it right away. You need to, I would give yourself some time, like think about it to write a tempered response. But also something that I have noticed that agriculture has been doing for a while is that if someone makes a comment about ranching or farming or something like that, that is totally wrong. For example, You know, like the big thing in the Green New Deal was they wanted to get rid of quote unquote farting cows, or that was in the frequently asked questions document. Well, greenhouse gasses that are the very small amount of them that are emitted from cows are actually from belching. So when you see someone like a lot of people, their reaction to seeing some inaccuracy that's shared by someone in a city or a politician or something will say, well, that person's an idiot or they're stupid or something like that. And that's pretty much the number one way to get people not to listen to you is to call them stupid or an idiot or, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. You can't insult people and then expect them to listen to what you're saying. So my first, I guess, piece of advice is be like, don't call people stupid. They're not gonna they're not gonna give any care at all about what you say if you're running around calling people who don't know about agriculture stupid. I don't know anything about living in New York City. I know nothing about navigating a subway or a metro Mm-hmm. or any of like those kind of city type things. But that doesn't make me stupid. It just makes me ignorant to that situation. People who don't know anything about beef production or farming or things like that, they're not stupid. They just didn't grow up around it. They're ignorant to the to the facts and they're ignorant to, the, to that lifestyle. And I don't believe the ignorant is a bad word. I mean, it literally means like lack of knowledge around something. So right. just stop calling people stupid and then you'll probably get a lot further with your message. So (laughs) in that letter, I worked really hard to be as respectful as possible. I mean, I was, I won't lie. I was very frustrated with what the green new deal, the frequently asked questions were proposing where somebody somewhere thought that cows were negatively impacting the environment. And that was very frustrating. And I was angry while I was writing my letter, but I know that like, you have to be respectful. So I worked really hard to be respectful and to provide information and try to find some common ground with the Congresswoman. And the common ground is that farmers and ranchers do care about our environment. We care about sustainability. And that's why we work every day to leave the land and the water and the air in better condition than we got it. So if you have that in mind, that you're just trying to share your truth and not call people stupid and be respectful, we would all get a lot further in our message if we would all just kind of keep that in mind. Absolutely.
0: You know, just like you said, showing respect and then keeping an open mind when communicating with somebody who maybe is on, you know, the opposite side of your opinion or your viewpoint, or like you said, is ignorant to our way of life just because they don't have that experience. I really appreciate the way you put that because that gives great insight where, you know, when we're dealing with maybe just not even on a large scale, but with a, a vegan friend or a vegetarian friend and trying to find that common ground and explaining things and also seeing where they're coming from. And, you know, maybe they experienced one one bad experience or they saw one bad thing that solidified their decision to become a, a vegan or whatever it might be. And it's just important to have that respect and understand where person a person's coming from, but then also help, you know, educate and encourage too. So I think you put that beautifully. And were you pretty nervous to put that letter out there? Like once you had sat on it for a while and worked through it and got it where you wanted to, were you a little nervous before you hit publish on that? Or did you not even think it would get as big as it did?
1: I mean, I was hoping it would get attention. I'm not going to lie, but I was hoping it yeah. would get attention from the congresswoman. And then she yeah. would respond. Did I ever imagine that MSNBC or a Fox News interview would happen? No, like that that was never something that crossed my mind. And that was not something that I was aspiring to make happen. But it was a byproduct of it. But no, I wasn't nervous when I published it. I i wrote it and then I reread it and proofed it and reread it and proofed it and reread it and proofed it like 10 times, probably more yeah. than that before I published it. I published it like on a Friday night and I didn't put it on Facebook until like Saturday morning Mm -hmm. and like within an hour of it being up on Saturday morning, it had, I mean, I don't even know how many likes it had on Facebook, several thousand and it was, I mean, my website crashed intermittently for like three days. So on and off because it's just a little old blog. It's not designed to hold hundreds of thousands of views at the same time. So Yeah. yeah, I did not expect any of that. I hoped that it would get attention. And that the congresswoman would respond, but I did not have any, any grasp of how big it would actually become.
0: It's incredible how, you know, just putting something out there, you never know how far reaching it can be, especially in a positive light. But I think that's incredible of how this took off. And you did such a fantastic job of structuring your letter. And I've read it a few times now, and it's just incredibly well said and thought out and I just thank you for doing that because not a lot of people can be able to put those kind of things into words and then communicate that to hopefully get a desired result and you just you nailed it. It was fantastic.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. It's taken a while to get to that point to write an elo- to write something that I feel is eloquent that it can address a point and not let frustration or anger point through. So I appreciate that because it is as someone who has been advocating for like a decade, I can tell you that I honestly was not always that way. Like 10 years ago, that letter would not have looked like that. Sure. So yeah it's it's definitely been a work in progress as all advocates are we're all just trying to stand up for our industry and let people see where their food comes from but also there's a lot of passion that comes with that and sometimes passion can manifest itself in Anger or ridicule or something like that. So I've just tried to be really careful and and have and grown and hopefully have learned how to be a better advocate. So thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. So what was it like having, I think it was MSNBC that came out to the, your ranch and actually did a full on interview that way, correct? Because Fox News is where you had the
1: personal interview. Yes. MSNBC came to the ranch. They called, I got a, it's funny, Von Hilliard, who is the MSNBC. Correspondent sent me an Instagram message, like a direct message. <laughs> and what is that? He slid into my DMs? Isn't that what they say is slid? Nope, in- exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be. Like, I'm not cool enough to be saying that kind of thing. <laughs> I just like it was like nine o'clock on the February thirteenth or something, or twelfth. I don't know what day it was. And he, I got this message, and I like opened it up, and I thought, well, that's weird. And then I, I always check my email before I go to bed, and I check my email, and there was an this email from him too, and. I so I responded. I was like, "Hi, you know." I said, "I'm very interested in, and I don't. I should have had the email open in front of me so I could give you some insight on it." But it was very respectful, and I mean, the whole MSNBC crew was great. But they were respectful and said, "We want to come talk to you about the Green New Deal and your cows and things like that. Would you be open to an interview tomorrow?" And I was like, okay, this is like, can someone, you know, the Kansas city station is going to come down. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like I because I live an hour and I emailed him and was like, yeah, I'm interested. Can you answer some of these questions for me? Because, you know, I didn't want to invite just anybody on our ranch. We're very protective of, right. You know, this is our lifestyle and I wouldn't want to portray our life and disappoint my family or our industry or anything like that. And he was like, no, this is like national MSNBC and we want to bring a whole crew to your ranch and yada. So I, and all that so Wow! I told my husband and I was just kind of like in shock. He wasn't here, but we got it all set up and they came to the ranch and there was actually a blizzard approaching that day, but they came to the ranch. There was four of them. It was Anna and oh, I, I think Mike was the other technician's name. And then Kai and Vaughn were the correspondent and the producers. And they were there. They were here for probably four hours, maybe. Wow. And it was a nice day. We basically just talked and stuff like that. We fed cows and they got to see all of them come up and they loved our cat and our dogs and we just (laughs) talked and, and, um, and they left and stayed in town nearby. And then the next morning we were supposed to do like a live lead in. So they would have been live from our ranch. So they stay there. They came to the house and I made them breakfast and we had cinnamon rolls. I made sure I gave them like bacon and milk and, and fruit. Yeah. And fruit. You know, they had like real breakfast food that we would have, you know? Yeah. And then because there was a national emergency declared, President Trump declared something a national emergency. I can't remember what. So the it got pushed um, like okay. the next week. So they didn't actually do the live lead in from our ranch, but they were here and with us for several hours that morning. And we had some great conversations about not just beef, but we talked about, labeling and how there's a lot of labeling on foods that is based on fear. And we talked about marketing foods and we talked about a lot of stuff that we didn't get into depth in the day before. We talked about like food waste and we even touched on some tough topics like growth hormones and antibiotics and things. And they were very open-minded and, and very friendly. And I mean, their crew, if Vaughn, if you're listening, your you and your crew can come back anytime. They were Lovely to work with. They didn't try to put words in my mouth. They didn't make us out to be redneck ranchers. They were, they just told our story and I so appreciate that and I respect it and I loved it. And that is a very long answer to your question, but I really want people to know that I, there was a lot of skepticism when I announced that MSNBC was coming to the ranch. And that was based on the fact that the, I think is, some, is viewed maybe not as friendly to the rural communities as some other sure. new networks. And I don't, I'm not gonna make any comments on that, but I got a lot of skepticism from people saying, oh, they're going to twist your words and they're going to throw you under the bus and that kind of thing. And they did not do that at all. They were, that's
0: fantastic.
1: I cannot speak highly enough of the respect they had for what we do, for the respect they had for us. They were friendly and amicable and they were just great people and they can come back any day they want.
0: That was a fantastic segment, and they, they really did do a good job on that, and you did a fantastic job as well. And what a neat experience, just to be able to share your lifestyle on a national news broadcast. I mean, that's fantastic, and I think that's just a really neat way for people who may not be able to get firsthand experience be able to gain some insight into what we do in the day-to-day, and I'm sure they really enjoyed it too. Randy, I loved learning of your education in science as well. You have quite the background with your degrees and everything and your blog, Buzzards Beat, is beautifully written. I mean, you do a, a, just a great job of educating others on all fronts. And I think when first generation ranchers are just getting started, it can be easy to overlook maybe some of the scientific aspects of sustaining their operations. Where do you think we should be utilizing science the most?
1: I mean, I think we should use science everywhere all the time. <laughs> so my husband and I, I don't know that you could call me a scientist. I have an undergrad and master's degrees in animal science. So I'm very pro-fact, pro-scientific method. You know, I like to see results and proof of those results and that kind of thing. And my husband has a PhD in animal science and nutrition. So we're very much about using science-based technologies and processes on our ranch because they work, they're proven to work. So we take a lot of records so that we have benchmarks and then we you know, we take records after the benchmarks to compare if we're growing or if we're meeting goals or if the animals need to have their rations tweaked a bit or something like that. So, I mean, I can't be a bigger advocate for science in every aspect of your life. They're just all of it all the time. So what I'm saying is that by no means do I believe you have to have a a master's or a degree or a PhD to be good farmer or rancher. I'm not implying that at all. All I am saying is that we have used a lot of what we learned getting our degrees on our ranch and we have found a lot of value and have seen some re- we've seen results with what we've applied to our ranch so we really appreciate incorporating those scientific principles into our into our ranch and our production operation
0: absolutely i think that's incredible and you know it can be so overwhelming when people especially first generation ranchers are just getting started and there's so much to it and it can be just real easy to forget some of the research and science behind it. And really, if you can utilize it and find a simple way just to get started in utilizing it, it can really help you get so much farther, so much faster. So I really appreciate your insight on that because there's a lot of significance behind implementing all the scientific aspects into your operation. And even if you just start out small and then work your way into going a little bit deeper, it's a great way to measure and improve on what you're doing.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to measure success if you don't Know what success looks like. Like, if you don't know where you started, how do you know if you're improving? Yeah. So, we're very big on setting those benchmarks and taking records and things like that.
0: What has been your biggest challenge thus far in your ranching journey? Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a loaded question. I know.
1: (laughs) Hey, no, it's good. I thought about a little bit. I would say the biggest challenge for us, honestly, is time. Yeah, because we both have full time jobs outside of ranching. We have a child. My husband travels quite a bit for work, and then we both obviously would like to have a hobby. Yeah, Uh, my hobby is rodeoing, and my husband also he enjoys hunting and judging livestock shows. And he's also coaches the extension region judging team, like the livestock judging team. It's three counties of kids coaches a team. So we have our passion projects mixed in there with our ranching lifestyle and then our full-time jobs and being a parent. So the hardest, the biggest challenge for us is time because we're not weekend ranchers. We're obviously taking care of our cows all week, but we end up doing a lot of stuff on the weekends. You know, we've got fix- to fix from the flooding. We need to take, we need to move a bull. We need to picture some bulls for sale. We, and you know, we just, that's just kind of stuff off the top of my head that we need to do this weekend. We've got hay that needs to be mowed, mowed and baled before the rain gets here, which apparently I checked the weather this morning, it's going to rain some tomorrow. So oh, no. Which is fine. I'm not complaining about rain. <laughs> we just we have to do a lot of our ranching on the weekend or at night. Um we do breeding, see. Our breeding season is like m- mainly like mid November to late November, so a lot of times we put our daughter to bed and then we go outside and we breed cows yeah. or we process or something like that. So we're we're nights and weekends. A lot of our time is wrapped up in it and that's fine. This mm-hmm. is the lifestyle that we've chosen and we love, but it does make for some time stress because you have to think of your value of your time and those kinds of things. So that's definitely our biggest challenge. Although we hope to in about eight and a half or nine years. The goal is for me to not have a full-time job. The goal is for me to be on the ranch full-time, take care of the cows. So that seems like a long way off, but I'm sure it will be here quickly.
0: (laughs) It's amazing how fast time can fly. And I work a day job as well and commute quite a long ways for it. And you're absolutely right. Time is so hard. It's like time and land are not renewable resources. So you have to be real crafty in how you utilize your time and I, I'm the same way, you know, when I get home from work, it's taking care of household duties and then all the livestock chores. And then the weekends are the big projects, repairing fences, getting prepared for winter. It's like here in Montana, our warm season is real short. And all of a sudden, you know, we could get snow at, out of any month throughout the year. Yeah. So you never know when it's going to come, but winters sometimes will come earlier than usual. May, we may get lucky and they come later, but there's no way to predict that. So it seems like through the spring, through early fall, we're preparing for winter and then the rest of the time we're bearing winners. So you're absolutely right on time. What has been your biggest tool in just staying organized and trying to make the most out of your time when you're not at your day jobs?
1: I am a gigantic fan of to-do lists and a planner. So I have a like right next to me, I'm sitting at my desk in my office because I work from home. So that's also helpful. Oh, nice. So I have a paper planner and it has everything written down in it. And then I have a Google planner Everything is in the Google planner and the paper planner. And then I'm a big fan of to-do lists. So I have like a big to-do list of work projects for the house here, you know, for our ranch. So it's got go get feed, put up temporary fence around Sorghum Sedan Field, Fix fence, yada, yada, yada. But then I even break it down further than that. And I'm like, okay, this morning, these are the three things that I can get done before such and such. So I, I'm all about the lists. My husband is not as much of a list person as I am. I think lists, <laughs> I think that lists are the way to go, but that's how I stay organized and can stay on task because if, yeah, I just would have a hard time keeping everything straight and prioritizing my time.
0: I couldn't be one of those people that just wings it. I mean, there's no way. And I'm a big fan of calendars and to-do lists. And I've talked in like previous episodes of just being intentional with your time and planning out your days, because even, you know, 15 minutes a day towards your goals or your passions adds up to a significant amount of time over the course of the year. And you can really move the needle on that. But I think being organized is the key part of that, like you're saying.
1: Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. I write things down, not because I can't remember them. I don't, I have kind of like a, I don't know, photographic memory is the right thing, but I just, I generally remember all the things I had to do, but I would have a hard time prioritizing if I didn't have them written down. I write them down. I write everything down.
0: (laughs) It really helps, especially if, you know, if something unexpected happens that kind of derails your day, which with livestock or even with families can happen. And it's just kind of nice to be able to have that on paper and be able to shift things around or maybe pick it back up the next day if you couldn't get to it. Yeah. Love to hear your insights on goal setting when you were first getting started. How did you and your husband approach this for your operation with everything else going on with your jobs and family and all that good stuff?
1: Honestly, we did not sit down and make like a goal list for our operation when we first got started and we should have. And that was a mistake we made. And I can totally admit to that. (laughs) We now do have a list of goals. Like I told you, one of them was for me to stay home. You know, that that was a long-term goal. We do have a list of goals right now because I feel like sometimes you can get so caught up in the day-to-day of, okay, we need to feed the bulls, check the cows, rotate pastures, do this, do that, that you can forget about the overarching goal, which Which would vary, I mean, varies depending on operation, but ours is to raise good quality balancer bulls that will put weight, you know, that will give bull buyers big calves, but also deliver quality as well. So I feel like if you don't have your goals written down and you don't look at those goals at least once a week, like you can get caught up in the day to day and then a year goes by and you're like, dang it, did we, did we do anything? Did we change anything to work towards that goal? Did we ever stop and reevaluate and tweak what were we doing? Or did we just stick to the same old, same old, because that's what we've been doing. So I'm very big proponent of having your goals written down where you can see them. I'm sitting at my desk right now and I have my like social media goals written down that I can see. And I can also see some of my Red Angus goals written um, and stuck to my desk. And you just, we write them down and we put them where we can see them. and We talk about them. I think I said earlier, if you're not measuring where you're at, how do you know if you're getting where, you know, if you've gotten to the end point. So we're very big proponents of the goals thing.
0: It's also nice just to be able to see how far you've come. You know, like you said, looking at those goals and you're constantly reviewing them and then subconsciously you're also working on them, even if it's not the forefront of your mind. And it's incredible when you just write something down, how much quicker that could come to fruition as opposed to just thinking about it or. You know, if you're not being intentional about it, like you said, sometimes you get to the end of the year and you're like, well, oh, what happened?" So I, I love your insight on that. That's incredible.
1: Well, I mean, I'm no, not like any expert or anything like that. I'm just an expert on what we do, and we have found that the setting, the writing the goals down, and watching them, um, and, and tweaking when we need to, we have found that that works for us.
0: So this next question is always a fun one for me because the answer varies from each person I talk to. And it's always exciting for me to hear this. So out of all the equipment and tools of the trade, what would be two that you couldn't raise your cattle without?
1: Oh my, I did think about this last night because there's so many, you know, and I thought, well, okay, so I'll tell you the things that I was going to say, I was going to say, I was going to try to be all like cool and hip and be like a positive attitude and, you know, or like a sense of humility. And while those things are all necessary in terms of like actual tools that you need, very first thing that came to mind would be a tractor or something to put hay out with. So we live around, we live, we have a tractor, but we also have a hydro bed with a with a feed box on it. So I, one of those things you need to put hay out. Um, And if you had told me 10 years ago that I would be like, I absolutely have to have a tractor. I would have laughed at you because I was like, I don't need a tractor. I don't farm anything. Like we don't raise any crops. I should have mentioned that we just have cattle. So we don't raise any crops. So I would have been like, I don't need a tractor. That's not something I need, but you need a tractor because you've got to be able to put hay out in the winter, either in a ring or I mean, I guess you could, you couldn't have a, you know, a hay unroller on the back of your trailer or your tractor too. So, but you've got to be able to put hay out for those cows in the winter. So that would be the very, the first thing that I would say, because that is actually the first piece of equipment we bought was a tractor. And then the other thing is not, is kind of like a more, and this won't surprise you because the conversation we've just had about goals and such, but is more kind of like a concept. And that is, you've got to have a good record keeping system. Ah, yes. So We, like you've probably gathered, we keep a lot of records because again, like what's the point of doing all this work? I mean, ranching and farming, and this is not supposed to sound like a sob story, but ranching and farming is hard work. Yeah. Nobody gets into the farming and ranching because they're looking to make an easy dollar.
0: Right.
1: We do it because we love it. And, but it is something it is a labor of love for sure. It's a lot of hard work. So if you're going to put all of this time and all of this money, oh my gosh, sometimes my husband and I think about the vacations we could take if we didn't have cows.
0: <laughs> I did that once too. And I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't do that again.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. or like, you know, we could have season tickets to the Kansas City Chiefs or something like that. Like all these things that we also love that we could do if we didn't have cows, but we love the cows more. So when you think about all the time and your money invested and your passion and your blood and sweat and tears, literally, that you're putting into your operation, you want to make sure you're getting everything out of it that you can. And I'm, we are just big proponents of keeping records. So we have records of every time we want, run something through the shoot. we take a record on it. It might only be a weight, but we've got a record of it because then we can see how they're growing. We just ran our bulls through four nights ago to see how they were gr- to growing. And we're going to tweak some things with what we're feeding them so that we can see if that will improve their growth. So... We just, I just cannot, cannot advocate enough for a good record keeping system. And it doesn't have to be anything fancy. It can be your iPhone. It can be a piece of paper and a clipboard, which is what we use. It can be a fancy app. I don't know. Like you can use apps. I think they make, I know they make apps for record keeping. It could be a little book. It could be a computer. I mean, it can be whatever, but you've got to have some sort of record keeping system so that you've got everything written down and that you can evaluate the traje- trajectory of your operation over time.
0: Nobody said that yet so far and it's kind of one of those simple things like for people who are in it that it's like, well, that's a no-brainer, you know, you need to do your records. But like for me when I was getting into it, nobody ever talked about that. It was just kind of something that was assumed that, duh, you gotta keep your records. But me being a first generation rancher with my family has no experience in agriculture whatsoever before me, that was something I kind of had to learn the hard way. And I was like, Oh, I should have been doing this all along. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. And I love how you went into the different ways you can do it. It can be as simple as you want, as far as just putting on a piece of paper, or you can go as far as getting programs or apps or, you know, detailed Excel spreadsheets. You can take it as far as you want, but there's so much truth behind what you said, because if you're not being intentional in that aspect too, you have no idea how to continue improving your herd for the future. And I'm so glad you went into that.
1: Well, I think that where where the whole write it down thing came from is I've just seen my grandpa, you know, those little red books yeah that you can get, like the red calving books. Yeah. Okay. So my grandpa has, he always has some, has, has always had some variation of that. So he used to be a day worker many years ago before he was retired. He was a day worker. I guess I should say, I'm assuming that most of your audience knows what a day worker is, but like he worked for a large ranch and checked cows and fed cows and calved and did all that. Like he he didn't own the ranch, he worked on the ranch. So anyway, he's always had a little book and he wrote down everything he did every day. Not like hour by hour, but he calved five cows today, fed this many pounds at this pasture. He raised and trained border collies for a long time. So maybe he wrote down like this this, uh, dog had a litter today or something like that. I've just seen him do that my whole life. And I think that had an impact on the whole writing it down thing and it doesn't like I said it doesn't have to be fancy but you're right it does it is something that's helpful and and I feel like for all the information there is out there for ranching and giving like on all the different trade publications that have advice for people about what you should feed your cows and when you should calve and grass uh, grazing and forage management all these things I feel like sometimes just something as simple as take your records would be valuable for people to hear because you don't you know a lot of things we just take for granted like well, we just, yeah, we should just do that. That's common sense. But for people who are just getting into farming or ranching, that's not common sense because yeah. again, they haven't grown up. You didn't grow up in this lifestyle. Right. So how would you know that you're exactly supposed to do that? So that is, uh, you make a very good point there.
0: Like you said, it's something that you can go back and reflect on. If it's maybe something you don't remember or you go, well, man, I had a calf that kind of had some similar symptoms before. i mean, go back and see what ended up happening. Uh, And like when I was a horse trainer, I would do day logs of the horses I worked and my experiences for that day, what I tried, what worked, what didn't. And there was numerous times that I'd go back on journals that were three or four years old and refresh myself on maybe a challenging horse I had that's similar to the current horse I was working And That's something I kind of carried over when I started doing more of the beef stuff. And it's just neat to be able to have that. It's like your own personal history book on your journey.
1: That is very cool. I am I should journal more. I don't, but I should. I think that those are, I think journals are really valuable and also just super interesting just to look back on things.
0: Yeah. So like, you know, your record keeping could be simple as, you know, when you're working them, what you did, their weights, all that kind of stuff, or as detailed as diary entries and the minute by minute, day by day. But I think anyway, no matter which way you're approaching it, any records is better than no records and, and what works for you and how you process things and can keep track of things. That's just a great one. I'm so glad you brought that up.
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad that I thought of something that hadn't been shared yet because I was kind of thinking, what could I say that wasn't, I don't know what other people had shared, but I didn't, I figured tractor had probably been mentioned before.
0: (laughs) You know, the tractor one, I'm so glad people bring this up a lot because it's so important to have a tractor. It just saves you so much time, especially when you're getting started. The tractor cuts down on manpower. If you have a tractor, it can do... Like feeding hay is important, especially in the winters. If you're living in a state that you get brutal winters, this helps you significantly. But also all the implements that you can invest in over time, like fence post pounders or augers. I mean, to help with fencing. Oh yeah, I've done all my fencing by hand with old-fashioned tee post pounders. Uh, my husband has an ice auger for ice fishing, and I bought a dirt auger attachment, so I've done all my post holes that way. And I just. I'm looking forward to the day that I have implements for a tractor to take that part over, but it, a tractor is so invaluable. And it's the, what I think can be the greatest investment as far as equipment goes for your property and your operation. So I'm glad that you brought that up again, because I want our listeners to be able to really understand the importance of some things that'll help you get farther so much quicker and also prevent injury. I mean, if you're trying to do things that a tractor can do, you have a higher risk of getting hurt, you know, cause it's not as efficient.
1: Right. That's a very good point. And I hadn't thought of it that way. I had just thought, I was just thinking strictly from a hay perspective, I cannot lift, I can't lift a 16, 1700 pound bale of hay as it turns yeah, out. Yeah. So I need some way to put that out and I could go borrow my dad's truck. He's got a bale bed, but that's not efficient to do every day. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that was, what I was thinking with, the hay, but you make a fabulous point. We have a fence post attachment, or a you know, like a an auger attachment on our tractor, and it's fabulous. And you're exactly right. Like, not only is it from a from an injury standpoint, because I'm gonna, you know, you're gonna, you throw your back out, you strain your arm, you, yeah. can, you know step in the hole and sprain your ankle, you could do all sorts of things. But that tractor not only saves you the the backbreaking labor, but the time. Because, like I said, if you're a weekend or a night range, like we are, like you've got to be cognizant of time. So you might have to spend it it really is an investment. So we had this, you know, we spent the money to buy the auger, which we were like, dang, yeah, we don't want to buy spend the money. But it doesn't take us, you know, all after day afternoon or all day to do the same amount of work in terms of digging post holes as it would if we had didn't have the auger. So you're exactly right. And then I'm trying to think of all the other things we do with our tractor. Like yeah, it's amazing. Putting gravel in muddy spots that need it. And that's mud is hard on equipment. So if I don't have to have my truck in four wheel drive to go through the mud, that's better on it. So it's really, um, it really does. The tractor is kind of invaluable to us. And like, it was an, we bought a used tractor. It was not a new one by any means. It was, it was not even, it was new to someone a very, 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 very long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. That was the very first thing we bought. And I don't, I do not regret that at all. No, in no way, shape or form.
0: Yeah, we're uh, currently tractor shopping because I have gone this far without a tractor, and I'm like, that's it. I'm not going another winter without a tractor, and it's hard, like, because we do round bales, and we've managed to move them with our trucks and stuff, and for the most part, I'll pitchfork that hay, Man. you know, over the fence to them if they're if we get a lot of snow and they're in a smaller pen, I put them in like our mothering pen, and I'm pitchforking the hay over, and it's just brutal. Yeah. So we are currently tractor shopping, and I cannot wait. I've been looking at all the implements you can get, and any job you can think of on a ranch or farm, there's an implement for it. And it's incredible what a, a tractor can do. I mean, it's just amazing to me.
1: Oh yeah. I'm so glad that you're, that you're like getting one. That's exciting. Yeah. You will oh. have to let me know if, what you guys find. And, and man, I just, you must have like some crazy muscles if you are pitchforking hay all winter.
0: We moved in the end of January. And so our new place didn't have any livestock set up at all. So I was bucketing water up to them as well. And so I'd fill my five gallon buckets and haul it up to the trough. We had this insulated water trough and no power, anything out there or solar system to help heat the water. So I was breaking ice and hauling hot water up there. And, you know, we got to negative 30 this year and it was just brutal. And I finally got smart. And then the back of our side-by-side, I put a tank in there, a big, like hundred gallon water trough. And we made a hose attachment so I fill that up and then drive it up and then empty it into the trough because I got so sick of bucketing water. But I tell you what, I got some nice summer arms for this year, so I'm pretty proud of that, but I don't have to do it again.
1: <laughs> yeah, I bet you do have some nice summer arms. I can't imagine bucking all that water. We're very fortunate that in the winter, the land that we lease for our winter pasture has a couple ponds on it. So I don't have to bucket water. I just have to chop ice, which is, is strenuous, but not, not as strenuous as carrying, you know, I don't know how much a five-gallon bucket of water weighs, but it's not a small amount, and um, bucketing water all winter, so I don't have to do that. Before we got the truck that had a feed box and the the bale bed on it, I was bucket feeding all of our cows with, with five-gallon buckets, oh, wow. so like putting it all in the back of the truck and then driving it over to the place – and then unloading it. And it wasn't, and we have like more than one cow. So it was more than, it was more than one bucket. And so I usually don't have to worry about, um, I don't have to watch what I eat as much in the winter, basically. yeah, I didn't then because I was bucket feeding all these cows. Now that the feed box was working, that was, we just got that this year. Um, now I have to watch what I eat instead, but I was in pretty good shape when I was bucket feeding everything all the time. So.
0: Yeah. You didn't have to worry about be feeling guilty for what you're eating. Like, Oh, you want that cupcake? Go for it, honey. <laughs> right. No, no guilt here. Yeah. Luckily, you know, we're getting everything set up now and the timing for when we moved was just awful, but we made it work. And this winter, I am so happy to report I will not have to do that situation because we've set up all of our water system. But I remember thinking, bucketing all that water, this is the first thing I'm going to get dialed in before next winter hits. because I'm not doing this whole bucketing thing again.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you made the development. That's, I mean, you're going to save a lot of time too. So
0: Brandy, what would be your best piece of advice to someone wanting to be a part of the beef industry in any capacity
1: in today's day and age? I would say that you need, I guess it's not really a what you need, but I guess a thought process, but don't expect things to happen overnight. And you've got to be prepared to be resilient because if you don't love it, you're going to hate it pretty quick. And that sounds really silly to say, if you don't love it, you'll hate it. But if you do not just passionately want to raise cattle or farm or whatever you want to do, you're going to hate it pretty quickly because it's, we all see on Instagram, like the perfect story of, you know, it's summer and the cows are on grass and it's pretty low maintenance in summer, as we Mm -hmm. all know. But you don't see the foot of mud and the slop and you don't see struggling to keep a calf alive and you've got to be resilient. And recognize it doesn't, it's not going to happen overnight because it's a slow process. It's slow and rewarding and tough and hard and it'll make you want to pull your hair out and cry. But if you love it, you'll keep going because why else would you keep doing something that is so difficult if you didn't love it? So that's, that would be what I kind of my like, not words of wisdom, but just kind of in my, our experience is that you've got to be able to just tough through it that
0: is so good and so much truth behind that. And this is truly a calling. Like I always say, people in the agricultural industry are very passionate people. And if you can find people like us in the industry that are doing this because they love it, and oftentimes only for maybe just enough profit to get through another year, or some years not even a profit, that's truly a calling where you're just wanting to do this just to be able to have the blessing to be able to do it another year and then the year after that and finding people to care for these animals when it's 30 below or in a in a blizzard or in a hailstorm or you know when it's high humidity and high heat like you guys experience in the summers to find somebody to do that day in and day out that's truly a passionate individual and like you said you have to love it and if you don't love it
1: you know you're not going to make it that's exactly right. You're very, I'm an eloquent writer. I'm not the most eloquent speaker, but you did a great job of saying what exactly what I meant there. Oh, well,
0: thank you for that. I appreciate it. And I am not a good writer. So you've got, you've got that covered for me because I have, I just am not good at writing things and putting things to text, but it's just something, you know, we get so passionate about. And I love talking about this kind of stuff and you've totally knocked it out of the park today. I loved all your insight and your advice and just how detailed you are. And I so appreciate you taking the time to join me and then share this with my listeners. It's just been an incredible
1: conversation today. Well, it's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you and I can't believe how quickly that hour went by so fast. I mean, I just love talking with people about what they do and what we do and, and learning. I'd I have I'd love to ask you all these questions about what you do <laughs> on your on Ranch and I don't have a podcast though. So to <laughs> interview you, yeah, I just love talking to people about what we do and what they do, and and try to learn and, and see maybe if what another rancher or farmer is doing could be applied in our setting. And we actually had an experience like that last year where a gentleman who is on the Red Ang- I work for the Red Angus Association of America. I didn't even say that, oh, but excellent. I worked for the Red Angus Association of America, and one of our board of directors was he is a like a grazing and grass management or type like forage management extension professional in North Carolina. And he was, he's was he been writing and talking a lot about stockpiling forage. So like like your fall forage is actually feeding baled hay in the fall while you stockpile your pastures and you don't hay them, you don't cut it. Interesting. And um, because then they're eating like that dry nutritional matter in the winter in like for us when they're in early gestation.
0: Yeah.
1: So it was just really interesting talking to him about it. And we decided to try it last year and we did it and we liked it. And we think we're going to do it again. So there's just so much value just in talking to, to other producers and seeing what they do. Yeah, You learn things, you learn things that maybe you can try and it may not work out on your operation, but it's worth trying try. And it's just really interesting because I think that's something that even agriculture, the agriculture sector has a hard time understanding is that every operation, literally every single operation is different. No two ranches or farms are the same anywhere. It 2 I live in a kind of a crop. There's crops and cattle where I live, but like I live kind of where the crops start to turn more into cattle as you go further South in Kansas. And like, so there's two corn farms right next to each other. And those two corn farms are probably on the same kind of soil. They're obviously in the same area, Kansas. They get the same, probably almost exact amount of rain and sunshine. And I bet, that those two corn farms are not the exact same in everything. Right. they do, So it's just, I think there's a lot of value in talking to people about what they do because we should never stop learning. We should always keep trying to improve and learn and, and about our industry and what we can do to be better.
0: Absolutely. There's so much truth to that. And even if, you know, you're talking with somebody and they're sharing, Hey, here's what I do and it might not work for your operation. You never know when you're going to run into somebody who's getting started or they've been in it for a while and they're struggling with that same thing. And you're like, Hey, I overheard somebody talking about this. Let me get you in touch with them. Or, hey, I was reading this article or heard this podcast. Give it a listen. It might help you out. And you never know when you're taking in information, how it might be able to help somebody even outside of your own stuff. So it's just always neat to be hearing different perspectives and taking in new info, even if it doesn't directly relate to your style of operation. So I'm I'm glad you brought that point up. And that's fascinating about the fall forage stockpiling that. I'm I haven't heard of that one before. And that really piqued my interest.
1: Yeah, I had not either. I think that, and I, again, I'm not a forage specialist, but I think that it's more common in areas of the country where the growing season, like the grass growing season goes later into the fall. You know, I do, we don't generally get our first snow until late December here. And last year we had a pretty rainy fall and it was warm all the way through mid October. So fescue is a we have a lot of fescue where I live that's what our pastures are at least the pastures that we own and so that grew later into the fall so we were able to stockpile it whereas if you live somewhere where winter hits a lot earlier I don't know how effective that practice would be so I have I have no idea so we just decided to give a try but I don't know if you could do that in Montana I honestly have no idea you I feel like winter is going to hit you before the end of December
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it just kind of depends on uh, on the year, but you know, like winter will hit us early on, like the cold temperatures. But sometimes we don't get all of our snow until mid December, or there's been years where the snow really didn't hit us till January, like where we get several feet that are stuck. Mm-hmm. So it, it just kind of varies and it's hit or miss.
1: Yeah, it would it would be interesting because I would think that you would need all the forage during the grazing season that you could get if you're going to winter set in that early. Yeah. I should clarify that, like. It gets cold before the end of December for us. We just generally don't get our snow until then. But it, it generally will start to get cold, you know, around the normal time of like when fall starts, you know, that october ish time. But yeah, we don't really get snow. We get all of our snow and ice and stuff generally late December on through, a, this year was like April. So we don't have the the snow and stuff, but we do have the cold, but we were able to, because it was Rainy and such long enough into the fall, we were able to get some good stockpiling. But I mean, it's just all about. It, it has a lot to do also with your setup, because again, no two operations are the same in terms of setups and barns and what you have for pens and things like that. So it's all about different ideas and seeing how you can maybe tweak them a little bit to apply to uh, to you. Because on our operation, like i really like the the look of grass in our lots we have like four corral pens up by our house we have this long driveway that you drive down and these big red barns and it looks really nice when there's like green grass in these lots because it's a house and stuff but when the cows have been in there a while and it rains like one time they just turn to like muddy slop lots and i hate that because i don't like people driving down coming to my house and all they see is is like these muddy lots with cows in them But if we want want to stockpile the fescue in the pastures, they have to be in those lots. So it's like a trade-off. We can either stockpile the pasture or we can have these cows in the lots and it look not nice. If we want to have the lots look nice, then we're going to have to graze the pasture. So, you know, there's trade-outs for everything. I've yet to find something that's 100% a win on all fronts.
0: Right. And that's the hard part because it can vary even where you're at from year to year and then like our state Montana is huge. So on the Eastern side, people can, you know, they have winter grazing available that they're, they don't have, their cows aren't having to shuffle through three feet or four feet of snow on the ground. And that situation doing like a, a fall stockpiling of that mm-hmm. would probably work really well on the Eastern side of our state. Uh, and I could see that being very beneficial for situations like that because they don't get a lot of mud. And like you said, earlier in the episode, you have kind of the worst of, both worlds as far as the mud season and then the heat and the humidity. So that's a huge balancing act.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, we have it, we have challenges, but I wouldn't, I mean, I don't want anybody listening to think that I feel that our operation location is more challenging than like a Montana or a Florida (laughs) or a Texas or something like that. I mean, every region has their own challenges. We just happen to have really wet winters and really hot, humid summers. So that's yeah, that's intriguing. Yeah. It's when you talked about how eastern Montana doesn't have a lot of mud. I was like, oh my gosh, that must be so nice, <laughs> right? But they don't all, But you can't have mud without rain, they don't have mud, they don't have rain, right? It's very dry over there, and it's we talked about how I like how I like rain, so yeah, exactly. It is
0: drier over there, they don't get as much moisture, and it's very flat and plainsy, but uh, yeah, it's just interesting because you know, I've talked with a lot of folks like. We had Megan from Riverbend Cattle Company, who's in Florida, and she was talking about, you know, the challenges with the humidity and then the insects down in Florida. And I never thought about that in warmer states. I didn't think of the bugs. They got a lot of bugs there. And then, you know, I've talked with just all over the nation, different types of setups. And each place, like you said, has its own challenges. And where I thought, oh, man, it must be so nice to ranch down there. And then with talking with these folks and learning about their challenges It's like, uh, I guess we all got it bad at some point during the year. Yeah.
1: If I find somewhere that has zero challenges, like zero bugs and just the perfect amount of rain um, and no heat and humidity, you will find me there. If I find that, you will never hear from me again because I will go there and not tell anybody else about it. And I will just, it will be my little place on the prairie or wherever it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, you couldn't tell a soul because then property prices would go through the roof and everybody would be
1: flooding there. Yeah, I'm not telling anybody about it. So if for some reason I disappear, (laughs) where I'm at. We'll know why. Yeah. Well, Brandy, this has been so much
0: fun. For our folks listening in, where can we learn more about you and your business? How can people follow along on your journey?
1: I am on Instagram and Twitter as Brandy Buzzard. That's Brandy with an I, like whiskey the brandy, the whiskey with an eye and buzzard like the bird. And then on Facebook, it is buzzards beat is the name of the Facebook page. And that is also the name of my blog.
0: Oh, this has been so much fun today. Thank you so much. And make sure you go and give Brandy a follow. Her Instagram is fantastic. Her Facebook page, I mean, she's just got so many awesome resources available. The blog posts are incredible. And then what she shares on her social media pages on the day to day. It's just been so insightful and I so appreciate, Randy, you doing this for our industry and sharing your journey with everybody.
1: Oh, well, thank you. I I seriously have loved this conversation and talking with you and I just appreciate you having me on the show so that I could share a little bit about what we do.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's been incredible and this has just been a fun conversation. So thank you so much again. I really just appreciate your time and everything you've brought in to help other first
1: generation ranchers on their journey. Well, thank you. I, I hope that someone gets something out of it. Oh, absolutely.